Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Peter and myself, Mike, are here and we're going to talk about Romanian babies. It's more complicated. It's than been that. a while since I've heard you, yeah, Mike. What, what's what's happened to this podcast? Well, first of all, we should say that there's another person count? here. Oliva is here. When did you get here? <laughs> Oliva hey. snuck in. It's past her bedtime, I think. <laughs> um, no, um, Peter and I are here. Um, we don't. I mean, I don't have any evidence that Wade has run away been kidnapped or has met his demise on the other hand i don't have any evidence that he is actually alive so we decided since we've been off for a while um that peter and i would would record some things um actually we have four (laughs) episodes that have been recorded that have one not of them pre-COVID nineteen lockdown nineteen all of them pre all of the craziness uh, of the last maybe three four four weeks mm-hmm. so we may say something like there's not nothing wrong with that but maybe you wouldn't have said that in this climate you know that right. kind of thing so, so we're we're like we're a good five six weeks uh, although the next one's probably like three months ago. yeah so four months maybe we it apologize. Was... <laughs> So uh, our disclaimer is uh, especially important in those episodes. There. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our main topic is going to be uh, based on an Atlantic article from quite a, uh, well, I don't remember, maybe a few weeks ago, three weeks June ago. June 23rd, like 2020. Right. And it's entitled, 30 Years Ago, Romanian Deprived Thousands of Babies of Human Contact. So uh, still under kind of a... Uh, communist state uh there were some children a whole generation of children that uh were deemed unsalvageable for whatever reason and were put into what we would loosely call orphanages um although that's probably generous and so there have been studies on these children uh and uh, their development now as adults uh, since it was, of course, 30 years ago. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, and so I gave it to, uh, sent it to Peter, and he said, okay, that we would discuss it. So, well, I even you, read it, too. You even, read, you even read, read it, it. yes. Um, and That's so, impressive. But we do need to, before we go any further, hear about our disclaimer. Even though we don't have Wade, we still want to we still want to <laughs> cover, cover our legal bases. bases. That's right. Yeah. Okay. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud, a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And we're back with the free-for-all where we wrestle with life's pressing questions try to answer them once and for all. So Oliva came up with our free-for-all today, so I don't know how well this is going to go, but here's the topic. What was the most exciting thing you did during the COVID-19 lockdown that we're kind of coming out of now? So Oliva, since it was your idea, 
what was the most exciting thing you did? Um, I don't know. Hmm. We we went to Michigan to visit our cousins. That was a lot of fun. Well, technically post-lockdown, but Michigan wouldn't let us in. I hear they put up a big wall, a big border wall to keep uh, Wisconsinites <laughs> out. <laughs> um, well, during the actual quarantine, I think I didn't go outside for like weeks at a time. So not really much. Um, yeah, this maybe wasn't the best free-for-all. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most exciting thing that you did was not go outside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we appreciate the effort. Um, Thank you. Do you have any other ideas for a free-for-all that would be maybe a little bit more exciting? Um, Peter? I think we should talk about duels. Dueling. Yeah, different ways of dueling. Like, okay, so perhaps you would say, what would be a good way to uh, uh, figure out who's right or wrong in a certain situation in the classic dueling way, but not with swords or guns? Could be with swords or guns. It could be with swords yeah. or guns. Okay. I think it could be, and I think that it doesn't necessarily be the best way to decide something, maybe the most entertaining way. Okay. Maybe the most um, juvenile way. I we think did, there's a lot of ways. We to did mention this off air, and Oliva, <laughs> what did you come up with? Well, I don't know. You could just have a debate with words. With words, a debate with, with words. words. Yes. yes. So classic that, dueling. Classic dueling. <laughs> and well, was, it wouldn't be the most good. exciting. Yeah. But. So, and uh, then you went on to say that you would win because you're going to take this logic class, and that you would win even if you were wrong. Even if I were on the wrong side. Yeah. That's that was what like dad the, says. That's like the selling that's point for her. She's like, I'm like, hey, we should do this logic course. And she says, uh, that sounds no. boring. And I said, you could win debates even if you're wrong. Right. And then she said, I like this. Yeah. So you would be kind of like a sophist where you would use rhetoric to win an argument and to uh, sway people. And the truth doesn't really matter. Are you... Are you, do you have a future in uh, politics or journalism in mind or something like that? Or maybe a, a, the law? Um, no. Do you no. know what sophist means? Um, do you know no. What, do you know what they are? So loosely translated, I appreciate the translation wise guys. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, kind of like smart, smart ones, wise ones. But sophists in uh, ancient Greece were people who went around and uh, sold their ability to debate and win arguments and they could convince you of anything right uh we think of them as salesmen today. yeah so <laughs> I, had a great, I had a great um uh definition i think her name is naomi zock had a had a definition of sophist i may have that she may have been quoting somebody else i can't remember but said a cross between uh, uh a cable news talking head and a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, that's about right. Because I, wrote, I wrote my senior thesis as an undergraduate on the sophistic movement. Hmm. Yeah. And now you're raising one. Yeah. Very, very, very good. <laughs> so right. that's one way to, do, to duel with words. Yeah, with words. Um, um, do you got any ideas? Yeah, I like uh, the, the classic racket. Rock, paper, scissors, Rock, right? Paper, I mean, scissors. that is a duel that most, you know, people by the time they're, what, five or yeah. six have participated <laughs> if, in if, many times. Uh, and it has 
binding authority when you're a certain age. Now, it mm-hmm. kind of loses that at some point, but then as a parent, you realize the binding authority of it again because, you know, we're done with this argument. Right. They won, clearly. Yeah. Um, I couldn't do this, but if I could, I would want it to be like drum solo duels. <laughs> <laughs> like dueling pianos, like or the piano dueling bar? dueling pianos, yeah. <laughs> like a drum solo duel, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be good. Um, what, what do you got? Um, I think if both people chose an animal and they had an animal fight. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, I wish I, I wish that Wade were here to chime in on that because I feel like he has some some very uh, pronounced thoughts about North American yeah. animals in particular. Yeah. But I would choose a gorilla with opposable thumbs. <laughs> well, they are a game changer. Um, mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't. I I'm against the use of firearms. In duels, that maybe make me. Uh, I think I want to duel you. What are you going to use? I know what I'm using. Heart liberal. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to see that. I'm not. I'm somewhere between you, Peter, who I'm assuming wants the most violent thing, and you, Oliva, who's like, I don't know. Can't we all just get along and do words or something like that? So I'm going to go in the middle, and like I wouldn't like. It's not Russian roulette because that would be that that would be insulting to the gift of life, and again, I don't want violence. But I'm thinking about like just a little bit of danger, like like I hold my hand up against the wall, and you're throwing knives at it or whatever, <laughs> and see how long you can you can keep it there before moving it, before jerking back, and whoever keeps it there the longest wins the duel. Automatic lose. If you lose a finger, you automatically lose the duel. Yeah. Mm. So you're kind of aiming at the fingers then. Oh, you're aiming yeah. at the fingers. Yeah. yeah. You're throwing it at me. And I somehow, this would be very hard to judge, but somehow <laughs> there'd have to be sensors and stuff. But somehow I pull it away and you're going to pull away when I throw the knife at you too. But... Whoever stays the longest. It's like a, you know, who blinks first. Well, you have to, like, if you pull it away, then they get to throw again. That's the, that would be the rule, right? So you have an incentive not to pull it away, to just sit there and take it. No, well, that, yeah, that would be, oh, man, there's some rules here. I would want to go second. This is the thing about dueling. You always have to have all of the rules laid out first. Because here's what happens. So two guys doing classic duel with pistols, right? And they go, like, one guy goes 10 paces, the other guy goes 20 paces, the guy goes 10 paces, he turns around and shoots, he gets, like, three shots off before the other guy even turns around. So, I mean, the rules are really important here. Correct. But I do like the idea of that there is some brinkmanship kind of something going on. Yeah. Like theirs. So when I was uh, was in grade school, my older cousin, he had uh, um, took to... He listened to like heavy metal music. Loved the you know, real heavy metal music. He was a he was a um, a drummer actually. So <laughs> could've, he could have had a drum duel and probably won. But he uh, he'd like to uh, play his heavy metal music. And then he found these uh, broomsticks in the garage. And he thought, hey, I could I could duel my uh, younger brother with these. And he's a year younger than me, so he's I don't know five years, four years different, something like that. So he's he's bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Faster, stronger, and uh, so he. Makes a circle in their front yard, mm-hmm. turns on his heavy metal music, blaring, gives them a gives them a broomstick, and then they uh, then they duel, they, <laughs> <laughs> and he very quickly hits his hits my this, this younger was in southern Minnesota. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He hits uh, my cousin's hand, so he drops the stick, mm-hmm. and then just starts pummeling him. <laughs> <laughs> we said my brothers and I uh, were kind of wusses, but. 
we were given boxing gloves one year, but only one pair. (laughs) 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 So so I remember whoever's oldest had to take the left-handed glove. (laughs) (laughs) So you had to become ambidextrous. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Like the only thing worse than giving young boys boxing gloves would be giving them one set of boxing gloves. <laughs> I don't know who gave that to us. So I'm just, I just pulled up the Wikipedia um, uh, site on dueling, mm-hmm. and I just I found this interesting. It said, by the 1770s, the practice of dueling was increasingly coming under attack from many sections of enlightened society as a violent relic. Quote, Peter said, yeah, I was doing air quotes for those yeah. enlightened society. <laughs> well, it seems a little weird to me. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. But yeah, they said it was a violent relic of Europe, Europe's medieval past, unsuited for modern life. Which, that's, this is news to me. I don't know, though, if you can trust Wikipedia. <laughs> ben does. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of actually a serious question. Like, we do look back upon things and say that was barbaric and wrong and whatever. And, and a lot of times we go, yeah, that, that was pretty bad. But the same impulses are there. We just do it. We just cover it up and whitewash it or something like that. So, for instance, like, you know, for a long time, gambling's coming back. But for a long time, gambling was just frowned upon as terrible and would take a while to get, um, uh, you know, only in certain circumstances could you have a casino in certain places or whatever. But lots of people are playing the stock market, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit more sophisticated and stuff. But then again, there, you know, if you get somebody who really, you know, counts cards and stuff like that, they kind of, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there is sort of a... You or know, stacks we, the deck. Yeah, well, we can look down our nose upon somebody who is, all right, hey, we're going we're gonna, to... We're gonna, we're going to fight with our fists to settle this and then have a whiskey afterwards. Mm-hmm. Is that better than everybody has a gun? Well, see, you I know th- what I mean? I think actually this is what I was going to say. I think that there was a, there like was a you're turning a man point. because you have a gun. I think most people in the, you would be like, uh, fight with your hands. Right. But I think coward. that firearms was a turning point in dueling. Like, you know, previously maybe you'd, you know, put your fists mm-hmm. up. Maybe you'd pull your sword out. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like those are like hand to hand combat. And then, like, the gun showed up and mm-hmm. kind of like, well, I think we, it just took us a little while to realize, mm-hmm. ah, maybe there's a better way. <laughs> I just kind of think that we're just as bad as they are. Oh, absolutely. I don't yeah. think the impulse has changed. No. I just think that we, our technology got to the point where we were killing yeah. each other too quickly. <laughs> we, kinda, we look down our nose upon some things when we are kind of blind that we're just as bad. Yeah. Well, we talk about in in warfare, we talk about how, you know, you used to have the Continental Army line up in a row in red coats or whatever, and then people would just kind of pick them off, and it just seemed to outlive its uh, usefulness Mm -hmm. with uh, firepower. But you go forward to World War One, and they're pretty, they're doing something on a much larger scale, uh, you know, lining up in a row, Mm -hmm. just getting Mm -hmm. blown away at just Mm -hmm. tremendous rates. And so, yeah, I think uh, um, maybe our technology is going to destroy us all, Mike. I, I kind of think so. <laughs> I kind of think so. We'll be the ones pushing the button, though. Yeah, well, like of I don't buy this. Like technology is going to overtake us. Oh, you mean but, like the AI? Yeah, yeah. No, we'll push the button. Yeah, yeah. fairly willingly. We, we won't. We won't <laughs> let our technology beat us. No. <laughs> we'll get there first. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there first. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Okay. Any other things um, about dueling, Oliva, that you would 
think? I don't know. I just like the animal fights. What happens if you have three people in a duel? Is it called a truel? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean... Can you look into that for me? Write a Wikipedia page so that by the next time we record, I can look it up and and cite it, okay? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think that was good enough. Um, Unless there's any last uh, options for dueling. I think we probably can think of some more if we have more time. I think there's, yeah. All right. So maybe maybe we'll do another one. Uh, But until then, we'll uh, we'll come back uh, for the rest of our time and talk about babies in Romania 30 30 years years ago. an Atlantic article from uh, late June. Uh, Melissa Faye Green is the one who wrote the story. 30 years ago, Romania deprived thousands of babies of human contact. Here's what's become of them. That's a very long title, by the way, but uh, it does kind of sum up what what the story is about. Uh, It's a long form. I would maybe describe it as long form journalism here. It is in the Atlantic, so. And it was, it mostly centers on this guy named Isidore, who was born uh, in 1980 and then was abandoned by his family um, uh, six weeks into his life. And then um, he finds his way into the home hospital for irrecoverable children. So what that is, is that people were deemed, children were deemed irrecoverable. For him, it was something with his legs, right? One of his legs he had, he had, uh, it shriveled at early on. Yeah. So think of somebody, I mean, and there is a a small list of, of items or conditions, um, even like a cleft lip or, Mm -hmm. uh, certain things, maybe speech impediments or something, not, not, or some more, um, obvious uh, uh, physical impediments and you would be put into to this hospital where you were not given, let's just say, a very good care. And the reason why I chose to read this article and it, it popped out to me is the title Deprived Thousands of Babies of Human Contact. And I can remember one professor always, he would always, he would say often in different classes about uh, how in the old days in, in orphanages that there would be people who would, their only job was to go and pick up and hold the babies for a little bit because they would wither and die if they didn't have human contact. And that always stuck <laughs> with me. I don't, I don't know how true all of that was, but that without human contact, literally physical contact, you can get pretty messed up very early on. And so these children were deprived of uh, good nutrition and uh, social skills and all that kind of stuff, but also human contact. And that's what, why I wanted to read this, this article. And so it follows the story of, of Isidore all the way. Now he is, uh, you know, he's would, would be 40, right? 40 mm-hmm. something and our 40 and, um, 
anyway, it's an interesting story. What were your first thoughts when you read it, Peter? Yeah, just the uh, the interesting way in which the children were were viewed by society, and obviously these were children that it wasn't uh, it wasn't it doesn't seem at least from the article that they were coming and, and pulling them out of homes, mm-hmm. but rather parents and families that couldn't care for their children. And Isidore, we find out at the end of the article, is a very poor family. And his family, he goes back and meets them when he's 30 or something like that. 20s, no. 20s maybe. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's kind of aghast, you know, I mean, like no electricity, no plumbing, mm-hmm. dirt floor. He's got some sisters that, you know, some grown siblings as well. And um, that's uh, the condition. And his mom just says, you know, we, we couldn't take care of you and we couldn't come visit you. We couldn't afford it. And so just to kind of think about that, like being in that situation, and I can appreciate that someone's in a situation where they can't afford to do what they maybe even really want to do. Mm-hmm. But then how are these children taken care of and to be put in these orphanages where they're, um, they're just kind of seen as, I don't know, it, it made me wonder why did they worry about keeping them alive even, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, you know, even like at a, a zoo where you have animals, you can say, well, keep them alive so people can see them. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can observe them, but there was nothing, none of that going on. So it's just interesting. Like what, what do we do with the, 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 you know, weakest and the mm-hmm. most vulnerable among us when the kind of normal structure, fam- you know, family structure primarily is not able to support them. And in Romania, 30 years ago, it was kind of house them, keep them. Don't worry so much about clothing them, feed them moderately, but not not much at all. I mean, right. enough so that when Isidore is adopted, he was, I want to say, 11. Yeah. And the person who, to- who told his adopting family passed him off as seven. Yeah. He was like 50 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, just the, the malnutrition, like, the, the, so in, in after, you know, communism really starts to fall in some of these Soviet bloc states, Western journalists get in there and uh, they talked about this as the child gulags and estimated 170,000 abandoned infants all the way up until teenagers were quote unquote raised here. And they're discovering children who are supposed to be teens and never developed sexual organs like the you know what what a normal teenager would have Mm -hmm. um being left in a crib your whole life so you never learned how to walk um you know you can imagine just all this stuff and and another thing that was striking to me is some of these western not just journalists but western doctors and uh, people going in and observing this sort of, of really kind of a phenomenon um that uh, they very quickly started to disassociate, right? They see just absolute horrific things. Um, and uh, all children, too. <laughs> you know, not, not that any better with, with adults, but all children, you, you have to almost disassociate. And I couldn't help but think about, there are some people who are working in these hospitals. How do they, how do they cope? How do they justify this? How do they, how can they live with themselves? You know, and, and they did talk about, so Isidore is extremely intelligent, right? And so he, he knows more about the children than the nurses do. Mm-hmm. Right? And there is one nurse who takes him home for, uh, uh an evening at her apartment. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he actually goes, makes a decision to go back, which is kind of quirk of the story. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, inadvertently. Yeah. But how does she, 
go to that how can she be the person who wants to say oh i like this intelligent little boy who has clearly gotten a raw deal and then go back and deal with 20 30 i don't know other children that are malnourished and haven't even developed speech sometimes and right. all this kind of stuff. Well, they talk about like some of those um, gross motor skills that just become repetitive, you know, the rocking, the moaning and things mm-hmm. like that. And it sounds like there were quite a few people who, quite a few of these children who were not ambulatory, obviously. There were a lot of people, a lot of children who, you know, had um, <clears throat> ailments that from birth that were uh, affecting their ability mm-hmm. to walk. And then, of course, they're not getting therapy and not being you know, push to strengthen those muscles. So that's eventually going to atrophy. So there's those. And then there's a bunch of children who can't talk. Some both can't do either, you know, and they're, and so you, you're really dealing with a very unique subset of humanity here in the, in the sense that there's this, they're all congregated right here and they're created largely by, I mean, their conditions, Mm -hmm. some that they're born with, but a lot that they're given socially. And so I think it would be fairly easy, maybe even necessary just to cope with it as a, as a, you know, quote unquote caregiver Mm -hmm. in that facility to just dehumanize them and say, Mm -hmm. well, and so Isidore, I think becomes a unique character in that regard. And I'm reading way, way too Mm -hmm. much into this, but Mm -hmm. this is how my mind sees it. like, he becomes a unique character because he's, he's very aware of what's going on and he's, you know, um, able to, he, he's retaining all these facts. He knows how old these children are who don't know how old they are you know he's like oh no you're this old because he remembers when Mm -hmm. they came in and just kind of keeps track of that and he kind of becomes the liaison for the director of this uh of this hospital Mm -hmm. and you know so the director comes in and talks to him because Mm -hmm. he can communicate and converse and i imagine in that environment he stands out and he kind of becomes someone that you say you know as a as the caregiver the nurse says uh, he should have better than this, you right. know. I mean, he's. It's harder to perhaps dehumanize someone who shows, you know, humanity. Clearly, yeah, yeah. clearly human characteristics. Yeah. So he sees, he sees the other children as human, although he's messed up too. Yeah. He sees the other children as human in the respect that they have a birthday, mm-hmm. they have a name, right? So when these Western journalists come in 1990, about so he's he's about 10, and this is where 11 is when I think he finally is mm-hmm. as, as adopted. And by the way, he's adopted because he's smart and cute. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, There's a whole yeah. other sub, you know, like uh-huh. like they didn't get into that, but yeah, that's yeah, exactly, you know, exactly what I thought. Um, he's he's charming, right? He has charisma, and his charisma is that. He can, he knows stuff. And so, uh, the, the John Upton's the, um, uh, the journalist and he says, you know, Isidore knows more about the children than the nurses do. So he was able to at least overcome this kind of human, you know, you could turn this into a human spirit kind of story, you know, (laughs) if you really wanted to, like he overcomes that and still maintains some sort of humanity that I see this other person and that person has a name and a birthday and the nurses don't even know the names or the birthdays of these children. The children don't know their birthdays. They don't maybe know where there's coming from. And so he writes, and this is maybe looking back into history when he, he writes a, a book, um, uh, when he did have that one day trip at the nurse's house, he, and, and this is, this is years later, so how accurate it is, you, you yeah. don't know. But he says, I'm trying to memorize everything. This is the first time he's out of the hospital. I'm trying to memorize everything so that I can go tell the children back at the hospital yeah. what the outside world was. 
right? I mean, it's so bad that like when he finally gets adopted, they they had given him a t they had had a TV where they were watching Dallas, nineteen eighties Dallas, whatever. <laughs> so they assume Americans are this is that this is the big they have giant houses, the land of giant houses, they say. And so when he gets in the airport with his adopted family out in San Diego, he asks where his room is in the terminal. As like, they, yeah, know, they, but that that was my house. I'm like, yep. oh, we sorry, we live in a. Yeah, a little a, condo. We live in a condo in San Diego. You're going to be very disappointed. But uh, yeah, disappointed with San Diego because who wants to live yeah, there? That's right. But just kind of, just a, a, you don't know. He doesn't have perception, right? Mm-hmm. Like what's big, what's small. Well, and that becomes clear even when he goes back in his 20s, and now he's spent probably, I'm certainly more time, more of his life in in the United States, mm-hmm. and he goes back to Romania and meets his his mom his biological mom and uh, his family. And he's like kind of jolted into this perspective in a way that like seeing what he's got. he, um, he calls or writes his, uh, his adopted mom and says, bring me home, you know? So, um, yeah, when, when he takes that trip to the nurse's house, there's like a little line in here. They said that he was, it was his first time ever going out into the world. And he looked in astonishment at the cars, the houses, the shops. He tried to absorb and memorize everything, to report back to the kids on his ward. And I, that struck me yeah. because I thought he's out there and he's seen all this stuff for the first time when he's eight, he's eight when he goes through mm-hmm. and <clears throat> when he goes out and he's seen all this and he's just, you know, astonished. And then he goes into this nurse's house and, you know, it didn't sound like it was anything too luxurious, but it was a house, you know, mm-hmm. with a family and kids neighbors. Play with and, him and stuff. Yeah. Kids have toys. And, and then he's, but what he says is, well, at least what the reporter tells us, he says is he wants to absorb everything so he can report back to the kids on his ward, which struck me like there's peers, right? There's mm-hmm. some, there's, there's some kind of personal, there's some responsibility to the others around you. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that the, no adults had felt like they had responsibility for him, mm-hmm. he was left to kind of be on his own. They, he, he still has that. It's still kind of bubbling up or percolating up. Mm-hmm. What's uh what's going on there. So, yeah, I, and just to finish out the story about when he goes home with the nurse. So she gives him the option. Do you want to come to work with me the next day or stay here? And he's, and I think this is why the author of the article makes a big deal about this because attachment and motherhood. And he said, you know, this is his mother. He's heard about what a mother is, but maybe didn't have, you know, well, I want to go with you. And then he goes right back to the hospital. He starts crying when he realizes yeah. where they're going. And, he didn't think about yeah, her work. Is yeah. <laughs> and they don't let him. I don't know why, but they don't let him <laughs> leave again. I'm not sure why. Uh, we're not told that, but yeah. So, um, you know, fast forward, he gets adopted by a family in, in San Diego, and it does not go well. I mean, he is clearly this is difficult for him, although he seems to be clearly intelligent charming can navigate his way through just about anything so it's not like he is he doesn't struggle with english he doesn't struggle necessarily with school or getting a job or whatever no the author even tells us he does quite well at school and the teachers like him and but he this loving family he is going to he he bucks against that in some very some very aggressive ways not necessarily violent but aggressive ways and and then we we get another expert later in the article that talks about this is striking to me that don't tell these and and we have you know our our people our age probably we all knew somebody who adopted somebody from a soviet ex-soviet state (laughs) right that was kind of a thing uh 
um, much like I hate to say it, but today, you know, oh, I have this somebody from Southeast Asia or something like that, you know, and it's all charming. It's all very good and wonderful and generous or whatever. Um, but sometimes, you know, you know, this is these aren't accessories. These are real people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so we can all imagine somebody coming from an Eastern Bloc. So there is. And what's interesting about this article is that it is a ready made, especially with these hospitals, a ready made uh, laboratory for psychological, um, uh, you know, whatever theories and stuff like that and testing, because you kind of do have you, you have a control group. You have people that can remain in the hospital and those people at various ages who are taken out and put into families. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at is uh, there was an expert who who has seen all of these Eastern Bloc or uh, Russian uh, children come over and then and develop and uh, into adults and, and how they have and how they have fared. And he said, don't say that you love them. Tell them that they're safe. Mm -hmm. Don't give them a room like you would your your other children fully decorated, but keep it plain and, and simple. And that uh, expert got a lot of pushback because all these kids need is hugs and stuff like yeah, that. They just need love. Right? And I <laughs> thought that was interesting that the older somebody came out of this situation, um, they don't know how to love. They don't know what it means. They don't know what that affection is. It's it can be striking and maybe even scary at first or whatever. Yeah, and Isidore even says that he's not capable of giving them what they want. Like he can't return that love. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't like they say this to him and he doesn't it doesn't it doesn't mean what they I mean he understands intellectually, yeah. I think it's it yeah. seems like what they're saying, but he can't understand that emotionally and therefore can't reciprocate it. And he knows that in yeah. some ways, um, you know, he's, he's all the, all that much more tragic because of his intelligence. Right. And maybe if he had stayed with that nurse's family at eight, he would have been able to make those attachments and, and, and be able to love and all of those kinds of things. But even at maybe age 11, you know, going to 12, that it was, too late for him mm -hmm. in a certain sense. Although at the end we do see that he did kind of love the family a little bit, or at least was moved by a car accident that they had gotten into and, mm -hmm. and felt, uh, I don't know if we would call it remorse for not, uh, you know, for treating them poorly as a teen, as a teenager, although you could certainly understand where he's coming from. So, yeah, definitely, you know, reconnects with a, a family that's mostly estranged because of this. And, and, uh, and he does say, I mean, the, the reporter tells us, he says to his mother and sisters, you know, I love you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's clear that they've, she's, they've made a big deal about the fact that this is not something that he can really say. Mm -hmm. And um, it's clear even at that moment, the tension there, that it is not an easy thing. And perhaps he doesn't even know what it is, which brings us back to the importance or the, you know, the, the question of human contact. And so interspersed in Isidore's story, you've got, especially later on, you start getting these, the kind of researcher's perspective. And she, she talks about, um, the different, uh, some different research that's going on. And so, um, there's a, a study that's done in Romania, um, where they have, um, I can't remember 130 children or something, but they take half the children at any rate and they keep them in an institution and then half of them they send to foster care. 
and uh, then they're collecting data and really very quickly says that there's, and I'll just quote this, glimmering through the data was a sensitive period of 24 months during which it was crucial for a child to establish an attachment relationship with a caregiver. Children taken out of orphanages before their second birthday were benefiting from the from being with families far more than those who stayed longer. Mm-hmm. And in general, that research, that particular research seemed to indicate that the longer they were in an orphanage or in an institution versus with caregivers, the more difficult it was and that they just had trouble seeing um, uh, uh, an adult as someone that was watching out for them, that was taking care of them. And so then the theory that they put forward in this article, at least, is that there's brain development, there's there's energy that is required to, you know, towards fear, towards self-preservation, towards these things that a child who has a caregiver there watching for them, they direct those requests, those fears, those anxieties to that adult, and then that adult comes and comforts them, whether it's by picking them up or, you know, um, giving them even just a smile or, you know, just patting their back, whatever it might be. But again, going back to that human contact and that there seems to be something really profound about that, especially in the first 24 months. And they also make it clear it's not just the 24 months. It's just that that window really starts closing pretty quickly after the 24 Mm -hmm. months for most people. And that um, the, you know, they talk about it as brain plasticity. And Mm -hmm. um, I think I vaguely understand what that might Mm -hmm. mean. But that that starts, you know, that that's not an unlimited thing. And then, you know, you kind of get, you know, habits built in even as early as that, which is very, very interesting and fascinating from like, a, you know, armchair clinical perspective mm-hmm. for me. But it's also very interesting from just a question of what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. And can you be human without certain, you know, without certain human things? Mm-hmm. So this all suggests to me that it's very, very difficult. And even people who are taken out of a situation like this and given a, you know, a loving family and a, a secure and safe place have a lot of trouble. In fact, the research you were talking about or the, the therapist you were talking about earlier, he had, he said that there were about 20% of the people that he saw that would live independent lives mm-hmm. in this sort of situation, 20%. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know, I think it was like 40% or something were not even going to I mean they wouldn't be able to live independent at all mm-hmm. they would always have to have you know some sort of adult supervision and so that's that's a profound number because that you can't account for just cognitive disabilities and mm-hmm. things this is something more and so um, thinking about it in a more contemporary in our situation mm-hmm. contemporary in the sense of like location as well um, becomes interesting to think about how how we care for and raise kids and you know keeping a you know food on the table is is important and uh playing with them and hugging them and things is evidently yeah. also important yeah i mean i didn't hug my children until they could say they loved me first you know? <laughs> i wasn't gonna give affection until they gave me affection yeah so it was like three you know after they were weaned then maybe yeah. i would yeah so well, you're saying maybe i was a little bit off i don't and i don't i mean i don't want to judge you mike i'm not i'm not here to judge uh, I, you know, it's what fascinates me, especially Gabe's about- not quite too. So, I mean, you know, but I'm th- I've been thinking more and more about giving him a hug. He seems pretty smart. Instead of kicking him in the pants. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that he's all hugged out with that many older, older siblings. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to me, and I, I can't quite, I, I don't think anybody's really been able to just totally describe this because, you know, it's one of the last frontiers is the brain, right? And 
what's the relationship between the physical body and then you know what do you want to talk about mind or or consciousness and then even you want to talk about a soul are those different things are they mixed up are they dependent on each other all those kinds of things and so this article from the Atlantic's not it's not not going to mention the soul mm-hmm. or anything like that that that's too much of a spiritual religious religious world a word um and and yet you can just kind of tell like you can't just explain all this away by the chemicals in the brain right i mean you can you may be able to say this is what happened physically in this thing uh this thing called the brain and so we understand that if a we we can we don't know, but we can come to pretty good conclusion that a child in the first two and a half years does not have that human contact so that, you know, whatever chemical is not being released, this is going to do, this is going to give a semi-permanent state in the brain, the physical brain, that is going to be very hard, if not impossible, to overcome the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And the more, the more they go without those chemicals being released because of this human contact or whatever it is, is you know, uh, you talk about just large and small motor skills and whatever that affects muscles and stuff like that. It's the same basic basic concept. The longer you are deprived of that. The, the harder it is and near impossible for the brain to over overcome that. But why should the idea of having a mother or having human contact or a feeling I'm in danger and I can, and, and the difference between I have nobody to look to for help and the fact that I can have somebody to look for to help. Why should that matter to our, to our brain matter? Why mm-hmm. should that affect, the chemical, whatever. And so it, when we talk about these, these psychological kind of theories, and then we get into the neuroscience, the actual brain stuff, and maybe we can pinpoint or correlate at best, maybe even see some causal things. This then is going to affect this, which is going to affect the brain, the actual brain matter, plasticity and stuff, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff that does not exclude a soul thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. I have a mother that I have a father or that my mother figure then left, right? And so to be fully human, I think, when I look at this is to say the soul affects the, the body and the body affects the soul. We are psychosomatic people. Mm-hmm. And I find it very fascinating that neuroscience is figuring this out, even though they'd have no agenda, I think, for either a pro and I think in most cases, I don't think they have an anti-religious agenda either. I no. think that's, uh, it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Me. So, I mean, this goes back to, in my studies, um, I dealt, I, I took s- some classes on, um, uh, the philosophy of mind. And, uh, we talked about, you know, these sort of things in the, from the ph- philosophical perspective. And it always comes back to how does the, how do the mind and the body interact? And Descartes famously had the, uh, the mind body dualism, or he would have said mind or he would have said soul body. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and he said, I think I figured it out. The, the, uh, the, the soul sits in the pineal gland, <laughs> right? I mean, like, I mean, that, and that's, I mean, that's kind of like a philosophy joke now, right? right I mean, right, it's like, where is right. the soul? Well, in the pineal gland. Um, but 
this is this is just to say you can go all the way back to the 16th century and this debate is raging and it's sure. raged completely through that i mean the, the, we have um in fact when i was in graduate school taking a class on philosophy of mind my professor was um for philosophy nerds out there he's continental not really his area but it was something that he was interested in for other reasons so he thought he'd teach this course and he just admitted right away he said i am not an expert in this field in the sense that i keep up with it and this field is constantly changing there's so much being written and so many things are changing he said so the texts we're going to go through are good they're good solid texts they're they're very influential but they're not necessarily the most you know current mm. um you know stuff that's going on in this field because things seem to just change so quickly which you know for a continental philosopher that's like you know like how, what are you talking about like aren't you still aren't we still trying to figure plato out you right, know <laughs> right, right. so but his we, we, as we went through it, though, he just talked about how this is such a hot topic. And if you understand it, I mean, there's something about it. We're trying to understand what it means to be human in philosophy in general. And in a very kind of scientific nuts and bolts way, this is the question, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. How do these two interact? Now, here's the real question. You're, you're talking about how, like, there's these chemical reactions in the brain, you know, when you get a hug when you're, mm -hmm. you know, two years old or whatever. Um, <laughs> so the real way to test this is. We figure out how to inject those chemicals, you know, right. exactly. Right. We do it and we just make a physical, we don't, or like a, like a chemical right. reaction there and right. not, you know, and remove that. And I suspect without, you know, any, you know, mm -hmm. science behind me whatsoever, but I suspect mm -hmm. that if we were to do that, we would find maybe better results than what we have in this mm -hmm. Romanian, you know, I experiment, uh, um, but not drastically better. I think that there's actually something about physical human contact, like touching another person, someone being there, having the ability to turn to someone and say, I don't know how, but it's going to be okay because mm -hmm. they know how, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, not to, to get all crazy religious about it, but I think this is exactly why what we go, when we look, when we turn to whatever religion it might be, we look to God and we say, I don't know how, but you say it's going to be okay. Right. Yeah. And within Lutheran tradition and Lutheran theology, this becomes something that it is, as I mean, our failure is not entirely throwing ourselves on God's grace, right? Mm -hmm. To under to understand ourselves as truly, completely depraved, and that everything that we have, all of our hope and and everything is a, is a gift, um, and uh, maybe that's something fundamentally human, at least fundamentally human in the fallen state, yeah. right? Well, in faith, right? I mean, this is what they're kind of talking about here: is there's no trust? Isdor Isdor can't trust. Yeah. It's very hard time trusting. Why? Because he was not loved. Right. And mm -hmm. even though he saw humanity, there was, there was something there. He just couldn't, he couldn't do it. Right. And I, I think you could think of passages like, you know, if, you know, you can't love until you're, you know, God loved you so that mm -hmm. you may love that, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and then just fun. Why faith? Why is the, why is it salvation through faith? Why is it? Well, yeah, because not about works, but there's something and I don't want to make too big of a deal about this, but fundamental about humanity that we, we only find rest in God to be Augustinian that way. Like mm -hmm. we have to trust in him. I, and I, I think it's fascinating to, behind all this, that this was in Romania, that this was, this was communism. This was the, you know, the, one of the, one of the late modernist kinds of great things that or there was supposed to be great movements that was going to fix the problem here. But, one of the many problems of communism is I think some of its atheistic groundings that it's very easy to say we don't need the family, mm -hmm. right? This is just a, we can, the state can mechanically figure this out, 
right? I think you're probably looking for the, the yeah. state can raise your children better. Yeah, than yeah, you no, can, exactly. Right, which is which is and 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 we're not trying to be liberal conservative here, but just for our liberal uh, audience, this is what drives conservatives crazy that the state can do something that the, you know, the state can do something better than the family can. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's more complicated than yeah. that, but you get what I'm saying that I can take this person and I can say, we don't really, they, we can take them out of the family. That doesn't really, who cares? Right. This is, this is a machine that we're right. dealing with. And so, and this machine is defunct, right? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. irrecoverable. So set it aside. And, and th there's still a glimmer of hope that we can't just kill them. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that's which not that's saw, not nothing, which is, you know, has happened in Soviet states and other states, as we know. So there's just a glimmer of humanity there. And then Isidore is that sure that if you want to put it, if you if you would write this as a story that would be that would be studied, he is the protagonist. You know, I mean, he's the protagonist yep. in this and he's different than 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 the people around him, different than his parents, different than the caregivers, different than the state, all in different ways. But they all are able they're all pulled down by this idea or have given up and accepted this idea that we're just a I hate to say a pile of molecules, but a machine There's something mm -hmm. that you can pull out of the family this is not going to be productive for society. So we just have to keep it alive. So what's the bare amount of resources that we can give to keep this thing alive. It's dehumanizing in that way. And, and, and there are, there are still in this going out of late modernity into post-modernity. There's some of that still hanging around, mm -hmm. you know, if I, am I just really a machine? Yeah. And, and I think, we're pulling ourselves out of that. And, and, and despite all the problems of, of our postmodern world, I find it quite delightful that we don't accept that anymore, mm -hmm. even though the answer may not be an Orthodox Lutheran answer in mm -hmm. public that I always like, at least we understand that we're not just machines, or at least we're, we're grappling with that. A little yeah, bit. no, I think we should celebrate, you know, those times when, when uh, humanity is celebrated, regardless of whether it comes from our specific religious or political perspective. I think that that's an important thing. And so, um, you know, when we understand the value of life and then act accordingly, um, which is what I think is our problem. And I think a lot of people who will read this article, it'll be their problem as well. So just to back up, we probably should have covered this earlier, but just to kind of fill out that circle. So the communist dictator who's in power, he, he says, hey, everyone should have large families and they mm -hmm. honor the mothers of a lot of children as heroes because, um, or heroines because they are, um, you know, you know, producing children, which is going to make the, the nation great. And then, of course, you have families that can't afford to, you know, take care of their children. And you also have, you know, children who are, what do they call them, uh, irrecoverable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so there were signs uh, that displayed the slogan, uh, the state can take better care of your child than you can. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean like that, that sentiment is, um, is definitely swirling around in, in all of this, which I wonder if there's not something when a, when a parent says, Oh, my child has a, you know, a, a physical defect mm -hmm. and we live on a farm and we're, you know, sustenance farmers. Mm -hmm. We can't, I mean like we, we can't afford to feed another mouth that mm -hmm. can't afford to, you know, that mm -hmm. can't help us um, produce more food if they're seeing a slogan that says the state can take better right. care of, if they don't say, you know what, this is the better thing, this is the right thing to do. And if it actually doesn't come from a place of, you know, we, we might say oddly a place of concern mm -hmm. and care, um, which, uh, 
brings us back to the the difficulty of you know great good intentions you know right. don't always lead the right. best places and i was picking on our liberal listeners but our conservative listeners too i think the state does play a role in these kinds of things and uh, you know, it, it is good that we have public schools that have dedicated themselves to saying, we, we choose to educate your child who has Down syndrome, and we are going to provide the resources for mm -hmm. that, that you as an individual family, 99% of individual families in America could not, would not have the resources for that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's much more of a mindset of, you know, what do you, what do you think a human being is? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that, that, like we've said, it's kind of like the ultimate question. Um, and along with that ultimate question is the mind body problem, <laughs> right? Because that's at the core of finding out what truth is, but also what a human being is as well. I think anyway. Yeah. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor and he's got a, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, catechesis student of his that his parents contacted him it sounded like fairly recently and said can you you know catechize our our, our son and i think he's 16 but he has down syndrome it's pretty pretty severe it sounded like so he said he didn't know like where this was going he's you know kind of a small country mm -hmm. church sort of place he just not, hasn't done this for but he said that family has been really dedicated they're there every wednesday mm -hmm. he's there for half an hour or more and they're talking mm -hmm. and he said you know he started to he's 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 never going to have the small catechism memorized mm -hmm. by heart he'll never mm -hmm. recite it to him but he's starting to you know understand these concepts and be able to articulate them in his own way and and the um my past friend was just saying like you know it just it started making me wonder about you know questions about when, when you know when it's proper and appropriate to commune someone but mm -hmm. this is just kind of the opposite side when you're looking at someone and saying you know how are they human what makes them human? How do we, you know, care for them? And then in a theological sense, you know, how does the church care for them? And, and what do we do? And, um, it's not even for, even for him, it's not an easy question. No. This isn't, I mean, like they, they don't know. He said, he said that he started talking about, you know, you know, you're telling the parents, your son, you know, at some point might be ready to receive communion. Would you be okay with that? And the parents were kind of shocked, like, well, we weren't expecting that. Um, and so just to kind of go yeah. through that, but to have those struggles. And I think in some ways, the people who are the hardest for us to understand are just a great point for us to kind of push ourselves to and say, okay, deal with these people. How do we handle these? And, and, you know, when you see this way of doing it, let's put them all in a, you know, hospital. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it makes me want to, it's the home hospital for irrecoverable children. It makes me want to, you know, create a home hospital for irrecoverable states. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, they didn't have a hospital for irrecoverable uh, communist dictators. Those were, those were just plots. Those, those were firing squads yeah. usually. So, um, but maybe that, they should duel. They could they, they, oh, yeah. have those dictators duel. Um, it's so, from a pastoral perspective, I, you know, there is, so the body, I'm going to talk in terms of body and, and soul. So, uh, you know, when I talk about mind, heart, gut, soul, spirit, I'm talking about one non-physical entity, you know, and highlighting something different about it. That's where I'm at. That's mm -hmm. maybe a different debate. Um, but the whole spiritual side, the whole non-physical side affects the physical side. And vice versa, so that um, somebody who does not have the right, be stupid, someone gets a bonk on the head when they're five, right? And they're no longer able to show empathy because it hit that part of the brain. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole soul 
is, you know, totally can't, can't have empathy. Maybe, but I don't know. In the same way, I may go visit an old timer as a pastor in the hospital who has had a stroke. He cannot physically do a lot of things, but I don't just go, well, he can't talk, therefore, or he can't articulate love for Jesus, therefore he's probably an atheist and going to hell, mm-hmm. right? The, the body affected something. The soul could still speak if it could, but, the, but it can't speak through this body because this body has been damaged. So when I look at Isidore and I say he can't love because of this chemical stuff, but throughout the story, he can, he's has trouble showing it. He has trouble even understanding it himself. And maybe the soul is damaged. Like my soul is damaged by sin, sins done to me and sins that I have committed. Don't obviously not going to deny that. But to label somebody as they did as irrecoverable, I think puts a limitation on the soul, right? So it's just interesting to think about, and I don't know where where I'm at. I don't think anybody really knows philosophically or through neuroscience or psychology the exact interaction and the answers to these questions. But I think they're... I think they're fascinating and I think important to discuss. I don't know what you think about the idea of the, the body's damage affecting the soul, but not necess- that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the soul can't do something, right? And the way we've talked about this before, I think the soul sees through the eyes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that's a clumsy way to put it, um, but I see through the eyes so that if, if there was a state of a disembodiment, which I think is possible. I mean, I think there's biblical evidence of that. It doesn't, seems rare. Um, that if I had an out of body experience, I'd still see you even though I didn't have my eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like physical sight yeah. is something possibly. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. they always say the eyes are the gateway to the soul, which I think is like looking through them backwards. But right. yeah, I mean like the idea, like it's an interesting there's concept. There's something like, to that. Maybe. Yeah. Like right. maybe, maybe that is the, the portal. Right. Um, maybe it's not a gland in the head. It's, you know. it, but I'm, I would say through the skin, through the nose, through the ears, through everything as well. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's some medieval theologian so, that has put this all together. No, no, yeah. I was going to say, so the medievals actually, um, yeah, the theologians would have said the, the, the person is one, you're united, mm-hmm. right? This body will rise again on the last day. Right. I mean, like, so done right right? i mean like this is the answer and this is why descartes is so controversial because he says no 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 no. it's okay the body and soul are separate Mm -hmm. and that becomes really important for descartes to like drive that wedge between there because what does he want to do he wants to examine the body something you couldn't do even on a even on a cadaver you couldn't you couldn't examine that because that's a person right Mm -hmm. and he's saying no no it's not really though because the most important part is the soul and that's Mm -hmm. the 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 enlivening part it's Mm -hmm. also the part that you know, continues that continues on beyond this mm-hmm. death that, that doesn't decay. And so by driving that wedge in there, he's able to then examine the body. Now, of course, I'm very biased here. I think that, um, I think Descartes was just more, I've said this before, more concerned about the rope burn on his neck than uh, about the uh, the actual theology behind this. And he, but he really wanted to be able yeah. to examine bodies. You know? And I'm okay with, I don't know how you feel, but I'm okay with 
not even calling that a body, that's a corpse. If a soulless body is, is a corpse, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, <clears throat> you know, there'll be a resurrection somehow. I can't, I can't. Right. I can't, I, I can't I, wrap I can't, my mind around that. I'm not going to worry about that. It's yeah. I, so we're, we're okay. Like, let's put our cards on the table. We're okay with like cadaver, like doing yeah, I'm, experiments on cadavers. Yeah. And like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an organ donor. Organ so, donor. Yeah. So, but it is interesting. I'm not, not just to be clear, I'm not an organ donor yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's stormy outside today. Know. Uh, you know, maybe it may be on the way home. It'll be your chance. Um, <laughs> When you're driving home. So the medieval together, holistic in that sense, mm -hmm. modernity split it, right? So these are either there isn't a soul or the soul is the most important thing. And the body is just sort of a cast that kind of gets us in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like has these urges or whatever, a latent Gnosticism yeah. maybe. So now we're dealing with maybe that same kind of Gnostic thing, like my identity versus my body kind of thing, um, which is always fascinating to me. Like, how can you, if you're, if you're an atheist that doesn't believe in a soul, how can you believe in a, you know what I mean? Like a identity separate from your body. I mean, it's, I'm sure you can figure yeah, it out. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's difficult. But again, I've said over and over again that, that then post-modernity, you're trying to put the physical and the, and the, and the spiritual back together. We can't, how, how do we do that with what we know about the brain, with what we know about science? Uh, how, how, do, how do we do that, right? And so we, we've said countless times on this podcast that it's not surprising that there isn't an interest in the occult and in, uh, heck, even going down to like Dungeons and Dragons and all these kinds of things for the last 20, 30 years that the spiritual is sort of coming back again. And that makes sense coming out of Romania, where you were told that this was just, just the state, it's just this, it's just the body, mm -hmm. it's just a machine, it's just whatever. Don't give me your family stuff, don't give me your tradition stuff, don't give me your church stuff or whatever. And I, and I think, you know, whenever you have a population that does say that, that says, throw out all the spiritual, throw out all the institutions, that's dangerous because you got to replace it with something. Are you going to replace it with a you know, a hospital of home hospital of irrecoverable children or well, what's it going to be? Right. So we live in an interesting time, but I think fascinating going into the unknown, but also kind of comforting that we're at least we are confronting some of those, those questions of modernity. Yeah. And never, never underestimate the uh, depravity of humanity, especially yeah. as a collective, because we'll do terrible things and we'll continue to do terrible things. And, uh, you know, the, this comes back to, I just kind of like, you know, cue you up here, but it comes back to the idea of vocation being a very personal thing, right? I mean, taking care of people that God has put in front of you. So I'll, you might have a couple more points. I'm just going to say, I'll try to remember to link this in the show notes. Yeah. So if anyone's looking for this, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's long form, so it's not yeah. a super quick read, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's still journalism. You can, you can make it through it and it's, it's uh, definitely worth the read. And there was a 2020 there, there was ago, which I did not I'm sure you no. can probably find that on YouTube somewhere or whatever but yeah so anyway yeah um, hey we are made for freedom not to be in a home hospital for irrecoverable children <laughs> so uh, my friends uh, count your blessings and let the bird fly uh, every evening when the sun goes down get in my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking 
I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up another round, I set him up another round, I set him up another round, one more round won't get me down. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk.